Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon, allowing you to call in if you have questions you'd like to ask about the Bible, about the Christian faith, or maybe, um, you know, objections, differences of opinion you have with the host. You want to talk about that? The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. I wanted to make some announcements I'll be making all week about Arizona. Uh, I'll be speaking in uh, five locations in Arizona over five days next week and the following week. That is the beginning Thursday, the 8th. Of February, so what's that? A couple, a couple days and a week from now, um, I'll be speaking on the eighth in Peoria, on the ninth, Friday in Scottsdale, on Saturday the tenth in Gilbert, Sunday the eleventh in Goodyear, and Monday the twelfth in Maricopa. All of these are kind of uh, surrounding uh, the Phoenix area. If you're interested in joining us for any of those meetings, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com and uh, find out the time and place, and join us. So we'd love to see you. Of course, next week also we'll have our uh, monthly Zoom call for everybody who wants to be a part of that on Wednesday night. Wednesday night next week, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. All right, uh, our lines are full, so we're going to go ahead and talk to our um, callers. First of all is John in Michigan. Uh, John, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yes, hello, Steve. Hi. I am a relatively new listener to Christian radio here in Detroit area. Uh Um, I am impressed by various teachers that I've been listening to. Among them is John MacArthur. What is your difference, or how do you and he differ in your teaching, if you could share some of that? Yeah, well, John MacArthur and I both believe in what we'd call exegetical teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse. I I don't do that on my radio show, but I ran a school for years and taught through the Bible that way, and you can find those lectures on our website. So uh, verse by verse teaching through the whole Bible, I think uh, MacArthur likes to take that approach as well, to expound on verses, uh, you know, through through a book. And... Uh, and, I, and, and that's a good thing to do. Now, John MacArthur and I have some uh, theological differences, but uh, then I have some theological differences with probably everybody. They wouldn't be the same ones with everybody, because uh, different teachers have, <clears throat> especially on certain controversies, uh, different positions they take. Now, there's three points in particular where John MacArthur and I would differ, uh, one of which is uh, he is a Calvinist, and I'm not a Calvinist. Another is that he's a dispensationalist. I'm not a dispensationalist. That has a lot to do with end times, um, pre-trib rapture, that kind of thing. He's, he's a dispensationalist. He takes those views. Uh, and also he's what we call a cessationist, which is somebody who believes, for some reason, that the, uh, that the gifts of the Spirit were taken away from the church at some uh, arbitrary time, I guess, maybe when the New Testament became available, maybe when the apostles died. I'm not really sure when. There's certainly nothing in the Bible that supports that view. And, uh, you know, people who take that view have to kind of make it up as they go along. So uh, they'd have to say that the, uh, maybe when the New Testament was completed or when the apostles died, for some reason the gifts of the Spirit that were, uh, you know, talked about it by Paul and, uh, you know, found in the book of Acts and 
so forth, that those gifts are just taken away. They don't exist anymore. That's called the cessationist view because it means that gifts have ceased somewhere in the first century. Now, I don't, I don't agree with that for, for the simple reason the Bible doesn't give any reason to believe it. Uh, I also don't believe in Calvinism. Now, Calvinism, there, there is a lot of scriptural support that Calvinists use, uh, much uh, unlike cessationists who don't have any scriptural support for their view. Uh, Calvinism has a lot of scripture they use, but I think they, I don't, I don't agree with their interpretations of the scriptures they use. So I'm not a Calvinist. And the same is true of dispensationalists. They use a lot of scripture too. And, uh, of these three views, I, the only one I used to be is a disp- I was a dispensationalist for many years myself. So I'm very familiar with the scriptures they use. And I don't, uh, I don't agree with the interpretations of those. So if John MacArthur is talking about those subjects, then he and I would be not, not in agreement on those points. Uh, but I will say that his, his beliefs on those are very possibly in agreement with the majority of evangelicals who listen to Christian radio. For example, the dispensational view is very dominant on Christian radio. So John MacArthur would be in the majority uh, of Christian broadcasters on that subject. Um, Calvinism, maybe not so much the majority, but there's a lot of Calvinists on the radio, and, and he's, uh, he's in good company there, too. Uh, as far as cessationists, I don't know how many of those are on the radio but uh, he's, I would say he's in pretty squarely in the camp of what many Baptists would hold to. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm uh, on those three issues, I'm on the other side of the aisle. Now, Steve, how, how do you understand why well-meaning believers, sincere, honest people apparently, why do they come to different conclusions when they seem to all be open to really understanding what the truth is? Well, I, I'm not saying this about John MacArthur, but I will say that uh, I think a lot of people are dispensationalists or are Calvinists uh, or are cessationists for no better reason than that some teacher that they respect holds that view. And if you ask, well, why do those teachers hold it? Usually it's because they sat under teachers who held it. Now, if you go back far enough, Calvinism goes back to Augustine. And, and ever since the time of Augustine, and especially since the Reformation, there have been a lot of uh, Protestants, especially, who, who uh, were bought into Calvinism. Now, Augustine was considered to be the most influential theologian in history. But he disagreed with all the church fathers before him. So for the first 400 years, church fathers all saw things a certain way. And, uh, and then Augustine comes along, and he's a, a brilliant writer, a brilliant uh, arguer. He came up with some new ideas that uh, he mixed in some Greek philosophy with the scriptures. And, and frankly, he convinced uh, he's the father of Roman Catholicism. He's also the father of the Reformation. So a lot of people feel like, well, this has been taught for thousands of years by both uh, you know, Catholics and Protestants, and it must be true. And, and a lot of people would also say, and who am I to question them? I think this is the attitude that mostly is the problem. A teacher will come up with a doctrine that no one taught before in the church. But because he's a very knowledgeable person, uh, many people who you know, want to believe in the scripture but don't really put out much effort to, to learn it for themselves, they'll hear him say, well, who am I to disagree with him? He knows more than I do. I, I had that very experience sitting under, uh, under Chuck Smith when I was in, in the Jesus moment. Uh, I figured he, he knows the Bible like, like by heart. How can I disagree with him? And that's how a lot of people are about dispensationalism. Uh, Darby, John, John Nelson Darby, invented dispensationalism back in the 1850s. And since then, many people were impressed by him. 
and then they've been impressed by people who were impressed by him and so forth. So I think a lot of people who do not do their own thinking independently. Now, I certainly don't want to say about about someone like uh, MacArthur that he doesn't think independently. I don't know how much he thinks independently, but he does follow the party line on many of those issues where there isn't really strong scriptural support. I think I think most preachers and pastors are likely to continue teaching either what they learned in seminary, uh, and sometimes seminaries have a, a you know a, uh, an official viewpoint on those things, and so they just learn it in seminary and they read to learn the Bible through that lens, through that grid, and they never can see it otherwise, uh, or and they don't want to, because in many cases they're also employed to pastor churches that want them to keep teaching those same things. I'm not saying these guys are mercenaries. I'm, that's not the least what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there's very little motivation to uh, to rethink your position from scratch if indeed uh, your whole living is made by, by teaching what you already believe is true. And um, so, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I, I, I can't answer for any individual. My guess is that John MacArthur holds his views to a very large degree because he learned them that way uh, when he was in college. Um, uh, the reason I disagree with him is I didn't go to that college, and uh, I read the Bible on my own. So uh, that's that's why Christians sometimes disagree. Uh, I do find what, that when Christians stop listening to favorite teachers, and I, and that would include people who you know who I'm their favorite teacher. I, I don't I don't intend to be anybody's favorite teacher, but some people I think I am their favorite teacher. But but uh, people don't should not get their views from their favorite teachers. They should get their views from their own study of Scripture. And a person should be able to listen to John MacArthur and me and other teachers who have different views and not be threatened by that. They should be able to go to the Bible and, and like the Bereans did, search the Scriptures and see if these things are so, and then reach their own conclusions. Uh, a lot of people feel intimidated about that, and I think that's why there's pretty pretty large numbers in all the different camps because all the different camps have some pretty you know some impressive teachers who promote their views and that's I think I think that's why they continue but they begin with one teacher dispensationalism started with one teacher uh, Calvinism started with one teacher Augustine and uh, I don't know where I think cessationism started with Calvin himself yeah, from what I've heard because Luther just a generation before Calvin was not a cessationist and the Catholics were not before the Reformation. So I, I'm pretty, I've heard that Calvin may have been the one who invented cessationism, the idea that the gifts have ceased. So, I mean, people often listen to their teachers uncritically. And in a sense, that's commendable because I think, I think a lot of people are humble enough to say, well, what do I know? He knows more than I do. That's a humble thing to say. But one might say, well, what do I know? I don't know much, but I certainly have the opportunity that they have to read the Bible and think for myself and make my own decisions. And maybe I should. And that's what I would recommend everyone do. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Okay. I will say this. The most important thing that John MacArthur teaches, I do, I completely agree with him on. And that is on the necessity of having Jesus be your Lord. Um, there are some Christians who teach an anti-lordship salvation. They teach that if you say Jesus is your Lord and, and, and that's a necessary part of salvation, they would say you're a heretic, but they are, are themselves the heretics. John MacArthur is very strong on the fact that Jesus must be your Lord. And that's also the emphasis of my teaching, too. So he and I, on what is, of course, the central point of Christianity, are in full agreement. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, John. God bless. Good talk to you. Okay, our next caller is Paul calling from Colorado. Hi, Paul. Welcome. Yeah, Steve, I uh, really appreciate your show, and thanks for all that you do. Uh, I, I just was wanted to get you to comment on something on a caller yesterday that was, I guess, like a little upset that she couldn't live up to the standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember. And I, a verse came into my mind while you were commenting on it, and I was wondering if you could read the verse and comment on it. And then I also had a question on uh, dispensationalism. Uh, the verse is Luke 17, verse 10. Okay, yeah. So I, I remember that verse. Um, so Jesus said, when you've done all that you're commanded to do, likewise, when you've done all those things that which you're commanded to do, he said, we uh, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do, and meaning we've done only our duty and nothing more. That's that's the verse. So um, it does say when you've done all that you're commanded to do. Now, uh, you know, most of what we're commanded to do, we, we can do. We just don't do it consistently. Um, you know, we can love our neighbor. We can forgive. We can live a moral life and so forth. We can do those things we're commanded to do, but doing them perfectly or consistently is the challenge. And uh, But what Jesus is saying is once you're doing it all right, once you're doing it perfectly, you still haven't earned any brownie points. You're still an unprofitable servant, and you've only done what's required. By doing what's required, you don't get special credit. You know, special credit comes from going above and beyond the duties. And Jesus is saying, don't be looking for congratulations or uh, – you know, a pat on the back because you obey what you're supposed to do. That's that's what you're required to do. Once you've done that, just your your attitude should be, I'm just an unprofitable servant. I've only done what's my duty to do. So that's that's what Jesus says, says there. Uh, what is your question about dispensationalism? Okay, yeah, thanks for that comment, Steve. Uh, my other question is, uh, you know, dispensationalism comes up a lot on your show, but something I don't hardly ever hear you. I don't think I've ever heard you comment on about it. And I don't know if it started out in the beginning with John Darby or not, but I think doesn't dispensationalism teach that that Jesus when he came the first time it was not to die for our sins but to set the kingdom up and when they the Jews rejected that supposedly that's when God decided to do plan B, which was go to the cross and die for sin. Well, you know, I think some dispensationalists would deny that they think that, but you're right in the sense that uh, the dispensational, uh, the main dispensational writers and teachers, their view has always been that Jesus came to establish the kingdom. Now, they knew, I mean, they would say God knew that this wouldn't happen because God foreknows everything. Uh, you know, this this is what he came to do, but but he knew he would not succeed because, I mean, otherwise he'd have to be ignorant of the facts. But that the purpose of Jesus' coming, they say, was to be installed as king of Israel like David was and to rule for a thousand years or whatever uh, over a kingdom of righteousness, they say. But they say that the Jews had to cooperate with this, and they didn't. And therefore, when they crucified him, which was their ultimate rejection of him as king, 
Well, then God postponed the kingdom. That's the word dispensations used in so often. They say it was postponed. And, uh, and then the church age began. So the age we live in from the time of Pentecost until, they would say, until the rapture of the church, which is still future, uh, they would say that's, that's a, a, a parenthetical, another term they use is parenthetical time. And when the church is raptured, then Israel will come uh, to the point of accepting Christ, and then he will return and he'll establish the kingdom that he should have established the first time, and that will be the millennial kingdom. That's the dispensational view. And uh, you're right, there's nothing in the Bible to support any part of that. No part of that is, is supported in Scripture. Okay, also, uh, just one other thing uh, in reference to John MacArthur. Uh, I was just wondering, why is it that a lot of these, I would call them so-called champions of dispensationalism, why, why won't they debate someone like you or anybody else? I don't think... John MacArthur's ever debated anybody on it, and I know uh, what's what's his name. Uh, I think you were going to debate him at one time, but then something happened. Uh, what's oh, David Hawking. David Hawking right. was one of he, them. He say he he won't even debate anybody, and he won't even participate in like the prophecy conferences. Yeah. Well, David Hawking was once willing to debate. Uh, and uh, and he and I were in fact scheduled to debate this way back in the might have been back in the 90s I think it was in the 90s or the early 2000s and uh, we were going to debate at a Calvary Chapel in Corvallis Oregon and and there came unfortunately a conflict in schedule the one day that he was available and I was planning to do it was a friend of mine in Texas was getting married and I'd already I didn't know he was going to get married that day but uh, I'd already promised I'd preach his wedding. And so I had to cancel, and I was really bummed. But I did see David Hawking at a church about, uh, what, 10, 12 years ago, and I wrote to him and said, you know, I'd be willing to debate you now. I live, I live a lot close to you now. And uh, he said he doesn't do that anymore. He's, he's, you know, we're all getting old. I mean, I, I'll never get too old to debate unless I lose my brain. But, uh, but I mean, he may have health issues. I don't know. He's, he's older than I am. So, I mean, um, he says he's too old, he doesn't do that anymore. But I think he used to be willing to. Now, Calvary Chapel pastors in general are the main dogmatists about Calvary Chapel, uh, excuse me, about dispensationalism. Uh, and John MacArthur is not a Calvary Chapel pastor, but, uh, but he's kind of like them in this respect. Uh, they're very dogmatic about this, but they will not debate. They won't even approve of someone else debating in most cases because they're afraid it will confuse the sheep because they're pretty sure their congregations are not really very smart. And if they hear two sides of one subject, it'll just throw them into massive confusion. They'll probably fall away from Christ. Um, fortunately, my listeners, uh, I, I think they're smart enough to make up their own mind. And I don't know of any of them who, by hearing both sides of the subject, have been thrown uh, you know, off course from following Jesus. But uh, almost all Calvary Chapel pastors pretty much take that approach. When you ask them, will you debate this? They'll usually say, well, no, we don't want to bring confusion to our sheep. We don't want to confuse the sheep because, you know, they, they can't handle it. And I think it's very interesting that they would think that because they, one thing Calvary Chapel does that most churches don't do, and this is a good thing, is they, like MacArthur himself, they teach the Bible through verse by verse. They go through the Bible and teach the whole Bible to their congregation. So you would think that their congregations would be the best equipped to uh, judge whether one thing is right or, or the other, if they hear a debate. But 
uh, I guess the pastors just don't have much confidence in the intelligence of their sheep. That's, uh, that's the only thing I can imagine. Because I think the pastors feel like they're smart enough themselves, uh, but they don't think the sheep are. So it's not going to happen. And, and now MacArthur, I don't think MacArthur necessarily feels the same way because he's, I don't think he's against debate in general. And I'm not sure he's never debated anyone. He might not have. But, I mean, if someone would persuade him to do it, I'd be, I'd be glad to, to do it, although he's a he's a much bigger man than I am in terms of uh, reputation and so forth. But that's okay. I mean, I I love the brethren, and, I you know, I, I like him. I kind of like him. So, anyway, I, I'd gladly debate him. I, I, right now, I'm kind of hoping that Dr. Michael Brown will debate me. Um, and and he, we have once before, and we both agreed we want to do it again. So we're hoping that will get set up. But debates, uh, it's hard hard to find people who want to debate these days. Okay, thanks a lot, Steve. All right, brother. Good talking to you. Thanks for your call. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, we have time, I think, for uh, one more before we take our break. And so our next caller is um, Travis in San Diego. Travis, welcome to The Narrow Path. How are you doing, Good, thanks. Can you, can you hear me? Uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like what you said yesterday, a couple of days ago, the lady. She said she walked 46 years with the Lord. I think she was worrying about her salvation. Uh-huh. And uh, you made it clear that we, you know, as Christians, we're all going to fall, sin. So I like that saying. You gave her hope, and uh, I prayed for her after that. I had yeah. the same question one time myself. Well, anyway, Do you have a question I today? I yeah, I got a question. I will just put that in. But, uh, yeah, uh, you said you're willing to debate. Are you looking for somebody to debate with? There's a fellow named Geno Jennings. I will, because uh, I don't know if you ever heard of him. Never He's, heard of uh, him. The Truth of Life Church um, out of Philly. You could look, might look him up on Google. Well, well let me just say this, Travis. Travis, let me say this. I'm not looking for people to debate. I, de- I oh, debate when I'm in- I debate when I'm invited to debate. If someone wants to debate me, I'll debate them. But I, I, I don't mind if we don't have any debates. I, I enjoy debates, but I also right. enjoy not debating. I, I, it's, it's a, I could take it or leave it, but I, I'm always willing to. It's just that a lot of people are not. But yeah, I mean, and I, it also would have to be on something I care enough to want to debate about. A lot of people have different views than me, but they're not on things. They're not a hill to die on or anything like that. So is that what you wanted okay. to know? Well, uh, yeah, and I have one more question. Uh, about uh, when Jesus uh, and his disciples, did he um, ever, uh, let me see, did he ever tell his disciples to not to go into uh, Jerusalem? Somebody said he never said that. No, he never, he never told them to not go into Jerusalem. In fact, he told them, to remain in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high. So, yeah, I'm not sure where that question is coming from, but I'm not sure why he would tell them not to, since he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem with them. All right. Okay, well, thank you. All right. Thank you for your call. Um, okay. We've got quite a few more calls we're going to take <clears throat> Excuse me, in the next half hour. But we come to the bottom of the hour where we have to let you know some things, and then we'll have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. Um, the narrow path is listener-supported. And uh, 
you know, radio shows, most Christian radio shows are, are listener supported. Christian radio shows tend to buy time from radio stations. Now, there's a few exceptions. Uh, there are some radio stations that will have somebody on staff that, uh, you know, that, that does the show and so forth, and they have advertisements and so forth. But most, uh, uh, most of the half-hour or hour-long block shows are probably listener-supported. And that means that we don't have any sponsors. <clears throat> it means that uh, we buy time on radio stations, and we buy time on over 80 stations now across the country. And, uh, and that's how we stay in the air. But we don't have anything for sale, and we don't have any uh, commercial sponsors or anything like that. We just let our audience know that we've been doing this daily for 27 years now, which is a pretty long time. And we've been able to do it without ever selling anything or raising money. I'm not even raising money now. I'm just informing you that uh, this is how we get by. If you want to help us down there, you can. You can write to the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can donate from our website. Now, the website is uh, an amazing thing. Uh, it's got hundreds and hundreds of resources. Everything there is free, but there's... I mentioned earlier that I taught verse by verse through the whole Bible in a school. Uh, the, the lectures are free to listen to at the website. I've also taught on many hundreds of topics that are, the lectures are free also at the website. And there's also certain, um, you know, there's, there's certain other kinds of resources there that you might be interested in. And I'd like to uh, give you a, a heads up about that. The, num- the, the website is thenarrowpath.com. And, uh, and go there. And, and also check out the tab at the top that says links and resources, or resources and links, because that has links to other uh, resources besides our website that, that use our material. There's a YouTube channel. Uh, there's an, uh, a topical index of calls from this program for, for years back. It's really a tremendous uh, resource, thenarrowpath.com. And you can also look at the announcements tab to see where I'm speaking including my speaking in about a week from now in Arizona. We're going to take a break for about 30 seconds, and I'll be back. We have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. The book of Hebrews tells us do not forget to do good and to share with others. So let's all do good and share the narrow path with Steve Gregg with family and friends. When the show is over today, tell one and all to go to thenarrowpath.com where they can study, learn, and enjoy with free topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and archives of all the Narrow Path radio shows. And be sure to tell them to tune into the show right here on the radio. Share listener-supported The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Share and do good. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're uh, live for another half hour taking your calls. I think our lines are full right now, but if you want to try to call in a few minutes, uh, you may find a line has opened up. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Our next caller is Cheryl, who is calling from Sacramento, California. Hi, Cheryl. Hi there. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, 
Yes, I'm calling to Steve to get some clarification from you about the issue of transubstantiation, the uh-huh. true body and blood of Christ during communion. Um, I used to be a Lutheran like 20 years ago and very strict and raised my children that way. And then my daughter later on married a man who became a Lutheran pastor, and they are now hmm. pastoring a church. Um, so I now, I no longer believe in some of the Lutheran practices. And I, I did a lot of research after leaving, especially the trans, transubstantiation. And, and I walked away from the church after I, after I accepted Christ and became born again in, in 1987. So I guess it has never been discussed why with all of them that I left the church and when I go to visit them, which is often, I'm not allowed to take communion in my son-in-law's church uh, and all my mm. grandsons and they're all sitting there watching, but I sit in the pews. I sit in the pew and they go up there and take their communion um, because of the rules of closed communion. So the other night um, we were having our family Sunday discussion because my son, my um, grandson lives with me. He's 23. And we had a very heated discussion regarding the subject because my 23-year-old grandson, who is a Lutheran, uh, was bringing a friend to his church. And he said that his friend was, uh, he takes him up to the communion rail, but the pastor just, you know, gives him the blessing on his head and said, God bless you or something. And, and But the friend was really confused about, in the future, not being able to take communion if he's not a, a member or whatever. So his father... Uh, the Lutheran pastor on the phone said, became very angry after my grandson said his friend's feelings were hurt. Hmm. And then I shared, I said, well, let me share something. And so my grandson Sam said, yeah, let grandma say something. So, um, so I said that when I come to visit, I cannot take communion when the rest of the family goes up to the altar. And I've never shared this before. And, yeah. um, cause I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a born again Christian. You guys know I'm a believer. Jesus Christ would never not accept me up there. Right. So uh, I don't right. understand this. And uh, so when my son-in-law, son-in-law became, his name's Wiley, he became so angry, the conversation had to end. And he was yelling on the phone. And he says, but he's angry, angry at you? Angry at me and the whole conversation. It's just, hmm. he probably deals with this with a lot of people that become members. Okay. And why yeah. they ask about the closed communion. And so I just, I'll just finish. And he said maybe sometime, un- I said maybe under sometimes some different circumstances, I can tell them why I left and my reasons. So I'm asking you what you might say or lead me to some explanations, what would help in my explanation to them. And I just might say that I did read your, um, go to your website and listen to your debates on the Eucharist with the Catholic um, uh-huh. uh, priest. And those were very good, and there were so many scriptures. But I'm thinking maybe there's something you could lead me to as well. Yeah. Well, the, the Lutheran view of communion is not identical to the Catholic view, but it's very close. Of course, yeah. transub, the transubstantiation is the Catholic view, and that is the view that the the, the wine and the bread actually become the, bl- right. the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus, whereas Luther held a different view, but not very different. Uh, he did not believe that the elements change. But he did believe that the real presence of Christ is above and below and beside and through the elements. So that when you take the elements, you are taking the uh, the real presence of Christ into you, which is yes. And and that's that's what I I, I don't to me I think that's a distinction without a difference. Uh, To suggest that there's something supernatural that happens with the bread and wine is something that really the Bible doesn't have any uh, any support for. Now. You know, 
things that the Bible doesn't discuss, which could be true. But I don't think, I mean, the Bible doesn't discuss that. And, uh, and yet it doesn't seem like it would be true if the Bible doesn't. If the Bible told us that the body actually, the bread becomes the body of Jesus and the wine becomes the blood of Jesus, well, I believe the Bible. I'd, I'd follow that. But, but without that, uh, just to have some person tell me that, I mean, that kind of, it kind of sounds like superstition to me because it's, it's expecting something supernatural without it being a biblical miracle. The Bible doesn't confirm it. And it's not even the kind of miracle. It's not even the kind of miracle that Jesus did. When Jesus did miracles, they were observable. Uh, that's the point. They were signs. You know, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead. You know, when Jesus did miracles, they were visible, and everyone knew a miracle had happened. They didn't have to be told and convinced by some priest that some miracle that was imperceptible had happened. And therefore, mm -hmm. if there is something miraculous in the communion elements then it's not like any other miracle in the Bible. It, in other words, it's a different kind of a miracle. I'm not sure why it would be, especially since the Bible doesn't say that it happens at all. So, I mean, it's, to my mind, it's, it's a strange thing. And it does, I mean, I, I, I hate to say this because I don't want to offend Christians who believe these doctrines, but, I mean, it just sounds like it's in the category of superstition rather than in the cap category of biblical miracles. It's not like a biblical miracle in any way. Uh, and it's not observable. And even if you eat the bread and drink the wine and, and then they pump your stomach and it comes up again, it's still bread and wine even when you, after you <laughs> ate it. So, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't change. And the Catholics agree with this. They, they acknowledge this. They say that the, it changes in its essence but not in its accidents. And by accidents, they mean its dimensions, its atomic structure, its outward form. So they agree that the bread and wine don't change into something else outwardly, but its essence changes in some way that's mystical. totally immeasurable. Yeah, m mystical, right, exactly. Now, as far as a church well, having closed communion, I, I just want to say this. I, I don't yeah. believe in churches having closed communion. Now, it's true that the early church was careful not to serve communion to unbaptized people. But right. uh, they, they lived at a time where all baptized people were in the same church, and they'd all been baptized, you know, in the apostolic manner. Nowadays, we have thousands of different kinds of churches. They all baptize in the way that they think was the apostolic manner. Obviously, they can't all be right. But all these groups have true Christians in them who should be, uh, who, who should share the fellowship of the saints. And if a group is a Christian group, and there's someone there like yourself who they know, you, they know you're a Christian, which means mm -hmm. they, they know that, um, well, what, what they know is that you're a part of the body of Christ, too. And yet they refuse communion to. That's bizarre. That's I mean I know churches that do that, but it's bizarre. I mean, what I would say to them is, uh, if Christ accepts somebody, how dare any church uh, discriminate against them in communion? I mean, I mean, if they say, well, that's just the way we do things. Well, okay, then then you don't give a good reason. You don't have a good reason. You're just you're just defying Christ. You're defying the unity of the body of Christ. You're saying that even though God, in fact, may accept these people, you don't. And therefore, you have a higher standard than God has. This is absurd. I mean, it's just I, I've never understood people thinking that way. But some do. And that's because they don't think biblically. It's interesting how actually Luther broke away from the Catholic Church because he wanted to follow the Bible. He wanted to follow a sola scriptura principle. But... This idea is certainly not he, he sola scriptura. Kept that. He kept that. You know, yeah, it's not biblical. 
So anyway, I, I'm sorry about that. I, I, I think the main point I would make if I was talking to them is that how dare you exclude from communion a person that you know Christ accepts as one of his own children, as one of his own followers, and let them answer that. And if they say, well, our church does that, well, well, how dare your church? How dare your church defy the head of the church? He would say to me, if you don't believe in the transubstantiation and the body and blood of Christ is real presence there, the true body and blood of Christ, then I can't give you communion. That's what my my seminary, my, my rules and laws are. Right. And, and I would say, well, how does, why would you follow your seminary instead of following Christ? Well, then when you had your debates with this um, um, the Catholic? priest, mm-hmm. the Catholic priest, I mean, yeah. you guys went on and on and on about all these scriptures. I don't know if you ever, ever convinced him. Cause he was just oh, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, and I probably couldn't convince him either. Uh, because, they, I mean, it's like I was talking to an earlier caller in the first half hour. She, uh, I, he was asking, why is it that Christians who are good Christians read the Bible you know, see things differently? It's partly because they've been, they've been taught them differently. And once you've seminary. been taught something, yeah, it's seminary or by whatever, upbringing or something, and once you've been taught something about the Scripture, you tend to read the Scripture through that grid, through that lens. And it's very hard, right. unless, unless you're determined to really be self-critical, and to be analytical and say, I want to make sure my views are scripture. I, w- I want to make sure that the scriptures I'm reading are really saying what I'm thinking they're saying. Unless someone has that kind of tenacity, they're likely just, the rest of their life, just read those verses and see that meaning every time they read them. Because that's what they've been conditioned to see. And, uh, right, it's the same yeah, thing I, with dispensationalism, same thing. Every, it's, it's the same with almost every doctrine. Uh, when you've been taught a doctrine... And uh, the teachers have given you certain Bible verses for it. And, and when you've been a sincere learner, uh, you basically see that doctrine whenever you read those verses, even if it's not there. And, you know, it's, it's like it says in Proverbs. He that seems first in his own cause seems right until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. You know, you, you first, the first people you hear, they sound right. It's convincing until it gets cross-examined. And some people don't want to be cross-examined. And when they do, they feel like the truth itself is being uh, at- attacked. And then they dig and that's in. Why he was so angry. Yeah, and then they dig in even harder because they feel like Correct. they're the defenders of truth against error. Yeah, I mean, this is a small-minded thing that unthinking people do, uh, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. I, I hate to say it, but I th- I, I, that's what I see it as. And I'm sorry that's happened to you. Shame on them. I mean, they shouldn't do that. And, and if he let me take communion, if I went there one day and he let me take communion, then some of his, his congregants would probably say to him, why did she's not Lutheran? Well, then he, he shouldn't have a hard time giving an answer. She's a Christian. Communion is for Christians. It's really yeah. quite a simple That's thing. Hey, yeah. Cheryl, I need to take well, another really call. I'm sorry to, sorry to hear about so your situation. Much. All right. Thank good talking so to you. God bless. bless. Bye now. All right, our next caller is Eric from Compton, California. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Hey, Steve. Uh, oh, boy, I had a lot of comments, but the time is short, so I'll just ask my question. Um, my my I have my wife's friend, I sent her a video to watch this morning, and it had to do with this, uh, the lady's name, she calls herself Celestial, and the blog is The Master's Voice of Prophecy. My question is, are there any examples in the Old Testament 
of female prophets? Yes. Yes, there are. Who? Uh, there was one named Huldah, for one thing. But also in the New Testament, there are female prophets. Uh, we're told in Acts, uh, must be around chapter 21, that Paul uh, and his team stayed in the home of the uh, Philip the Evangelist. It says he had four daughters who were prophetesses. And, really? okay. uh, and, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that a woman can pray or prophesy with her head covered. So, I mean, Paul knew of women prophesying. And, and she uh, wears, what's that? And she does wear a, she does wear a covering over her head while she's on yeah. when she's online. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also point out that the, the the scripture that Peter said was fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, which is Joel chapter two, said uh, that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So did, there's quite quite a bit of support. Right. Yeah, quite a bit of support. Okay, yeah. so I guess what I have to do is I have to get into what she says and weigh it against the Word of God. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Hi, right, everybody. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay. Good talking to you, Eric. Okay. Let's talk to Ray from Woodenville, Washington. Ray, welcome. Oh, hi there. Hey, hi. Um, I got a question. So I am, I'm in a debate with my high school senior who goes to chapel and considers that church. I don't consider that church. I believe that she says, well, we're two, two people get together and Jesus is there. Well, I agree with that 100%. But I think a church is more structured. It has, you know, elders and deacons and like Paul talks about you know he's a hand to feet the arms where a chapel is just kind of like you know a, I don't know a conference about Jesus and you learn something I just wanted what, to see what your opinion is on that what uh, what kind of chapel is she going to like at school or yeah something? yes yes sir it's just a, it's a high school chapel that's required and Okay, and uh, yeah. I, I said that's good, but it's it's not church because we require her to go to church. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, says, but um, I'll tell you this: um, I don't think church has to be structured in a specific way, though they usually are. I think that a person who's a Christian should desire to be in fellowship with Christians as often as they can. So, I mean, if they if you have the opportunity to be in chapel and in church, well, I wouldn't see why you'd neglect the one, unless, of course, the church in question is really a boring one or something like that. I mean, I will say this. Paul indicated that some churches are, it's worse to go to them than to none at all. He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, he said when you gather together, you gather for the worse, not for the better. In other words, when you gather together, it's worse than when you weren't gathered together. Now, a church can be that bad. Uh, that you know, Corinthians. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11 says that. And so, uh, so I would say that, you know, I can. There are some churches I wouldn't go to, uh, although I'd, I'd love to be in fellowship with the people there. But sometimes the churches are just, uh, you know, they're, they're not really spiritually or scripturally what I think a church should be. Now, about a church having elders and deacons and things like that, it's true. The apostles did appoint elders in virtually all the churches. There were some churches that do not appear to have uh, those. Uh, like, for example, on Paul and, and, uh, and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they went through uh, uh, Pisidia and, and Galatia establishing churches, and they left them without elders. But then when they came back later, they appointed elders in them. But So there was a period of time when those churches didn't have elders, but they were still churches. But, you know, it was more normative, more normative to have elders. And uh, so Paul told Timothy to appoint elders, and he told Titus 
to appoint, appoint elders in the churches in every city in Crete, which sounds like maybe they didn't have them and needed them. Uh, so, so the appointment well, of elders is a biblical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the definition of a church then? Because, you know, it says uh, in Hebrews, right, you know, don't forget, forsake the assembling of the saints. I mean, I, I could be wrong on the scripture reference, but. No, you're right. That's Hebrews it, 10. It, it, yeah, so, I mean, so what is the definition of a church? I mean, does a church just mean a bunch of people getting together well, here's in the thing. a random setting? Or is it, is it something that happens on a regular basis like the synagogue did in the Old Testament? Right. Well, let, let me clarify one thing. The, the word church is used three different ways in, in the New Testament. It is used to be, speak of, of course, the whole body of Christ worldwide is the one, one body of Christ, the one bride of Christ, the church, the global church. And we're all part of that if we're born again. And then, of course, right. there's the church, the church in a given town, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, the church in Laodicea, the church in Ephesus, and so forth. Now, that's, that would simply be the local sampling of the global church. That is, even these local churches and towns were considered to be connected uh, in the family of God with all the churches elsewhere. As you see, for example, when Paul goes through the churches in Greece, and has them concerned with and, and taking up a uh, collection for the churches in Judea, whom they'd never met and who they didn't fellowship with, but they, they saw them as part of the same body of Christ. So you've got the global church made up of all Christians. Then you've got the, lo- the, the local city church, which is all the, all the Christians. You know, it's that sampling of the global church that happens to be in that one little area. Now, all the Christians in a given town are in the church of that area. But then there's a third way that it's used. And that is where it's talking about uh, a congregation. Now, in the New Testament times, congregations more often than not met in homes. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> we don't know how formal they were but we, or how large they were. Uh, but, they, you know, your daughter, I think it was your daughter you said, uh, says that we're two or more gathered in Christ's name. There he is. I believe that's true. In fact, well, I don't agree with Augustine on many things. I agree with something he said. He said, wherever Christ is, there is the church. And I believe that where two are gathered, there Christ is. So if they're gathered together to worship Christ, to function as a segment of the body of Christ, then I believe they, they qualify as a Christian gathering of a church. But again, they are only a small sampling of the larger church of their town, which is itself a small sampling of the larger church throughout the world. Now, every congregation in your town, in uh, Woodenville, Washington, every, every, every congregation is just a sample of the body of Christ in that town. If you go to every one of those churches, you'll find the body of Christ is there. And, uh, and, and yet they don't all share one big organization. You know, they each have their own local structures. Some of them have a pastor, some of them have elders, some of them have deacons, some of them have different things. Uh, but, but it's the people. The people are the church. A gathering of the people is a gathering of, the, of, of Christ's body. And that's what I consider to be a church. Now, it's true. Churches often need to have uh, structures. And Paul, in his letters, often corrects uh, churches who's, who are out of line. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not orderly. Uh, uh, or, or he'll appoint elders in a church. My impression is that the Church of Corinth, the most disorderly church Paul ever wrote to, and he wrote more to them than to any other church ever, uh, that they didn't appear to have elders. 
Uh, we don't ever read of the leaders of that church, even though Paul's trying to deal with serious problems in the church. He never addresses the elders or the bishops there, never mentions them. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, the household of Stephanus, the family of Stephanus, he says, they've been Christians longer than anyone else in Achaia, and they are addicted to serving the saints. So submit to people like that, which is interesting. I mean, he didn't say submit to the people who are your elders or pastors. He said submit to people like these people who are serving who are older Christians, and that's who you need to submit to. So it sounds like they weren't even appointed as, as elders. Now, I do believe elders are a normal, uh, a normal office in the church, but I think some churches fun- function without them. Right. Right, right. Well, I don't, I don't think they have any elders there. And, it, you know, it's kind of a – it doesn't meet in the summer. You know, when, when kids graduate, they don't go back to there. It's only for the students well, who I, are there. You know, I, nobody else can come in. So, so she, I, lives I really, right? she, she lives in your home, uh-huh. yeah. then right? She lives in your home. Then she has uh-huh. to submit to you. Then she has to go to church if you order to. That's it's that simple. Oh, oh I understand that, but it, it, it's just I'm trying to just figure out. Trying she we we I said we're just going to have to agree to disagree because she just doesn't want to give up the the, the chapel of the church. And I'm thinking, well, mm-hmm. no, the chapel is more like a conference. You know, there may be Jesus there. It was like maybe going to a Joyce Meyer seminar, you know. You learn a lot, and God's yeah. there and encourages well, let me you, say this. it's not a church. Let me say this. I don't know why she can't go to both, you know. But um, if, well, you'd know, if, you'd want to know, if you'd want to know my understanding of the New Testament church, uh, there's a series of lectures at my website that you might want to listen to. They're free. It's called Some Assembly Required. Uh, if you go to The uh-huh. Narrow Path, thenarrowpath.com, under topical lectures, okay. Under uh-huh. topical lectures, there's a series called "Some Assembly Required." You might want to, uh, if you're interested in my understanding of it, you might want to listen to those. Uh, those yeah, are yeah. Pretty thorough. That'd be great. Okay, I'll look into okay, that. Okay, Hey, we're required. almost out of time. Thank you. Thank I need you. To, okay, sure. Thank you, very much. thank you for calling. Thanks. Okay, bye now. Let's talk to Don from Connecticut. Don, welcome to the Narrow uh, Path. Hi, Steve. Um, I'll take your answer off the air. How does your understanding with your uh, millennial views, um, how does the the, uh, the Antichrist, the man of sin, and the one world government, um, how does that all fit into your views? Thank you. Yes, thank you for calling. Uh, first of all, um, the idea of a one world government at the end of the world uh, is not, not seen as a scriptural prediction. That doesn't mean there won't be one. You see, that the amillennial view doesn't make very many specific predictions about the end of the world. The amillennial view is not technically about eschatology. It's more about understanding the meaning of the age of the church between the first and second coming of Christ. Uh, but there is eschatology in that at the end of the thousand years, the Satan is loosed for a little while and causes a lot of trouble. But there's not really much description of that certainly there's there's not a there's no specific mention in the whole bible about a one world government people sometimes think they see it because the beast in revelation 13 says all the world worship him but the world uh, in the bible is not always talking about the globe in fact in most cases it's talking about the the mediterranean world uh, it says in luke chapter 2 that a, a, at the very beginning that a decree went up from caesar augustus that all the world should be taxed well, it only means the Roman Empire, of course. It doesn't mean the whole planet. Uh, Caesar had no power to register the planet, nor did he even know about most of the people on the planet. So the whole world in those days was the Roman world or the Mediterranean world, 
And um, there's actually nothing in the Bible that speaks of, uh, at least in any uh, indisputable way, of a, uh, a global world government. As far as Antichrist is concerned, uh, there, there could easily be a, a world leader who is uh, against Christ and who persecutes the church, just like there could very well be a world government in the end. It's just, <clears throat> I don't think the Bible mentions one. Um, the beast in Revelation is not a man, but he's an animal. It has seven heads and ten horns, which are seven kings and ten kings, respectively. That's not one man. That's a government system. Um, likewise, the man of sin, mentioned by Paul in Second Thessalonians 2, uh, through most of history, this was seen to be, or at least most of Protestant history, this was seen to be uh, not a man, but a system also. Um, Daniel's little horn in chapter 7, I believe, is a, is a uh, government system. Uh, the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is, a, is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived 175 years before Christ. So I, I don't know of anything in the Bible that mentions an anti... First of all, the word Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation or any other eschatological book. Uh, the, the word Antichrist, you can look it up, it's only found in the book of First John, which is a short epistle, and in this book of Second John, which is mentioned once. And there we're told, whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah, that person is Antichrist. And John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, but there's already many Antichrists, he said. In his day, there were many Antichrists. He said, thereby you know it's the last hour. So there's actually no suggestion that the word Antichrist in John's writings has any reference to an individual man. He said, anybody who, who disagrees with Christ being the Messiah is Antichrist. So uh, that's... And that's uh, so the uh, millennial view doesn't have all of this uh, scenario at the end times because it's frankly it's not in the Bible. Anyway, I appreciate your call, and uh, you've been listening to the Narrow Path. I'm sorry to the callers who did not get on. Uh, we did go along with some calls, but that's what happens sometimes. The Narrow Path, as I said earlier, is a listener-supported ministry. You can write to us at the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California. 92593 or go to com. our website you can take anything there for free or donate if you want thenarrowpath.com thanks for joining us let's talk again tomorrow God bless mm-hmm.